0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. As the world has changed dramatically in recent weeks, our jobs have changed too. If you're looking to explore the science of making sense of work in these trying times you should check out Work Life with Adam Grant, a podcast from TED. This season, you'll learn how small wins can help you fight burnout, how you don't have to fight loneliness at work alone, and what veteran remote worker, aka retired astronaut Scott Kelly, does to build mental resilience. Listen to Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you get your podcasts. I know I always do. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jessie Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. And here we are, more than two months into working from home for me. It has its ups and its downs. I've figured out how to do my job. I've got a working approach mostly to watching my son, thanks to a lot of help from family and my wife. But there's this one part of this situation that feels intolerable to me. It's the uncertainty. When do things change? What changes? Things are starting to open up. Will they stay open? What's gonna go back to normal and what's gonna be different forever? That's why I thought it would be a good week to talk with Lori Gottlieb. Lori is a therapist and author. You might've heard of her. She wrote that book that was a bestseller last year. It was called, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. I know I'm not the only one struggling with this discomfort. I see it in your comments, in the letters you're sending me. We're figuring it out together, what the pandemic really means for our careers and our businesses. There's a lot of gray area. So I put this question to Lori. How do we manage uncertainty gracefully? As humans, we don't do well with uncertainty.
1: But I think the thing that we do that maybe we don't even notice is that when there's uncertainty, we try to fill in the blanks so that we feel like we have more control. But generally, we don't fill in the blanks with something positive. We tend to fill in the blanks with something terrifying or negative. So what I think a lot of us are doing right now is taking our anxiety about the uncertainty and writing a story in our heads that is not a story that we like, and then imagining that that is the truth, even though we're kind of futurizing or catastrophizing um, about something that not only hasn't happened yet, but may never happen.
0: Why do humans do it that way? I mean, why don't we write better stories for ourselves? I think it's very related to the fact
1: that we tend to talk to ourselves in a very negative way. When I say to people, who's the person that you talk to most in your life? Most people will say, it's my partner, it's my child, or it's my parent, or it's my best friend, or my sibling. Um, But the answer is the person we talk to most is ourselves. And we don't realize how loud that voice can be and how constant it is. And so, you know, we do the same thing, not just with uncertainty, but with kindness. We're very unkind to ourselves. So, so often people will be really, really hard on themselves thinking that if they self-flagellate, that will like whip them into shape and then they'll do better. <laughs> they'll be more successful. They'll be more productive, whatever it is. But really where growth and transformation come from um, is from a place of self-compassion. Self-compassion doesn't mean you're not accountable. It, it actually helps you to be more accountable in the long terms.
0: Um, I. Love that we began there because, Laurie, as I was reading your book in preparation for our conversation, I took this one thing down. It was something that you had said in an interview. You said, the experience of my patient, my own, made me realize that the importance of not wasting time. And one way we waste time that hopefully therapy addresses is the constant perseveration, the soundtrack in our heads that makes us mean to ourselves and makes us make bad decisions. And if we can start learning to be kind to ourselves, we save a lot of time on the planet.
1: We do. We take up so much emotional real estate with the kind of spinning in our minds. So much of us want to be productive in life. And you think about how much we waste time with these thoughts that are not helpful. Even when you look at what's going on right now with the coronavirus, there's, you know, people think that certain kinds of emotions are negative. Like if I'm anxious, that's negative. If I'm sad, that's negative. If I'm angry, that's negative. But actually our feelings are really useful. They help us in certain ways. So there's a good kind of anxiety. And that's productive anxiety. And productive anxiety is where you are reasonably worried about something. And so because you're worried about it, you take productive action. So we are all worried about the spread of the coronavirus. And so we're washing our hands, we're social distancing, we're following all the guidelines, we're using our anxiety in a productive way. If we were not worried, we would not be doing any of this and it would be you know, much more widespread than it already is. Now, unproductive anxiety is that obsessive rumination. It's like reading the news every hour. It's saying, you know, this is going to happen next week or next month or whatever that story in your mind is. And that's not helpful because it doesn't help you to take productive action. So I think it's really important that as we're so focused on protecting our physical immune systems, we have to be equally protective of our psychological immune systems.
0: That's it's a wonderful way of framing it, thinking about taking care of our psychological immune systems. I mean, what would the equivalent of washing our hands for our psychological immune system be?
1: Just as we want to protect our physical immune systems from an outside invader like a virus, we want to protect our psychological immune systems from some something that's toxic to our emotional health. So the kinds of things that are toxic are... Um, not paying attention to your feelings and kind of stuffing them down because we feel like there's almost like a hierarchy of of grief, right? Or a hierarchy of pain. I write about this and maybe you should talk to someone about how there's no hierarchy of pain, that pain is pain and suffering is suffering. And I think right now with the coronavirus, some people are saying, well, if it's not loss of health, loss of life, loss of income, loss of job, then I can't really talk about the loss of going to my child's college graduation after my child worked so hard for this. I can't really talk about the loss of the daily things in life that connect me to other people, going to work, um, you know, the people that I see, the things that I do. So we feel like we can't really talk about that. But this isn't the grief Olympics, you know? (laughs) There's no, this isn't a contest. Um, So I think when we start to compare, that's toxic to our psychological immune systems.
0: Laurie, I just want to say, I think you have nailed the moment we're in, in the, in the quarantine period. Every conversation I have with, uh, with people at the beginning of meetings or one-on-one begins with, how are you? Oh, well, things are really, things are really good here because here, whatever it is, fill in the blank, we have a backyard or we have food or we are all healthy. Followed immediately by all of the string of things that hurt but that we're not allowing ourselves to experience the real hurt around. I guess I hadn't really thought about it as I can have my hurt. It doesn't have to be as big as or even compared to your hurt.
1: Right. So, so somebody else's pain does not take away from yours, right? Meaning like their pain might be very big. That doesn't mean that there's not room for yours too. The other thing that's really helpful, I think, for our psychological immune systems is this concept of both and, which is you can experience two very opposing, seemingly opposing kinds of states at the same time. So for example, my son is home doing remote learning and he's 14. And normally during the day, I don't get to hear a lot about what goes on in his days. Um, At that age, there's not a lot of sharing. And at home, I get to see a lot and spend all this time with him. And we're both enjoying it so much, even though the circumstances under which I'm seeing him are, are, of course, horrible. Right? I wrote a piece in the New York Times and... It was about how a lot of people are saying to me, Well, you must, it must be horrible seeing all these patients as a therapist and hearing all these stories all day. You must be so drained. And I said, Actually, we laugh a lot. And I don't mean that there's anything at all, even remotely funny, about the coronavirus. What I mean is that. We're doing these virtual sessions and a lot of people don't have privacy. And so they're either doing their sessions from like a closet or a car or the toilet, like sitting on the toilet, right? Because they go in the bathroom and they close the door and they sit down on the edge of the bathtub or on the toilet. And um, and this one woman was talking to me about, she was sobbing because her mother, is in a nursing home. And there was a a confirmed case of COVID in the nursing home. And she was so worried that her mother was going to get it and die. And she was sobbing about that. And she leaned back and she accidentally flushed the toilet. And this whooshing sound filled the room. And I, you know, she said to me, am I the only person who does, um, you know, just therapy from, you know, from the toilet? And I said, no, the toilet has become the new couch. And I immediately regretted making that that joke because of what she was talking about, but she laughed. And then I laughed. And at the end of the session, she said to me, you know, the session was really helpful to me. What you said was really helpful. But what was most comforting to me was the ability to laugh with you. She said, it reminded me of myself before this whole thing happened. And it reminds me of, it gives me hope for the self that I will be in the future. And she said, I didn't realize that I probably haven't laughed in a month. Wow! And so when we talk about, again, our psychological immune systems, you know, and contagion, you want to know what's really contagious is laughter. And so I think that it's really important that we can hold the pain and the joy at the same time. So we can laugh with people. It's okay.
0: Beneath what you're talking about too is, is the connection that you share when you express whatever emotion you're having in tandem with someone else, right? That moment when you t- you laugh together was a, a sort of a breakdown of the barriers that keep us all isolated. And it's harder to figure out how to do that right now.
1: One of the kind of silver linings of this whole thing is that there's a real leveling. I think that we're all seeing people that we know in a different context, in a much more intimate context. So people may have known that their coworkers had kids or had a partner or had a dog or whatever, but now they're like barging in and they're on the screen and And all of a sudden, we're getting curious. We're like, oh, how old are your kids? Or, you know, what are they up to? Or, you know, the dog will be sitting there on their lap. And I think we're seeing a much more human side to the people that we normally see only like a very limited part of. And and I think that helps us to, to connect with people on a deeper level. So when we emerge from this, I think that having had those connections with people,
0: Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay One thing that I have noticed and heard from the people that I'm talking to is that something has changed in the last week or so. We were completely on lockdown. It was like a bear hibernating. We all knew what that experience was. And now we're moving into this new stage of the experience, which is an opening up And it introduces new levels of uncertainty. And I personally, I'll talk about my own experience, I'm restless as heck and I'm uncomfortable psychologically again in a way that I I wasn't last week and I don't understand what that's about. Does that make any sense to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of what makes us feel human has been taken away. And I think the most significant part of that is presence. And I mean, presence in person with people Nothing can replace like sitting a few feet away from somebody, hearing them breathe, um, feeling the energy in the room. Um, and so I think that what we're what we're all missing is that sense of of being physically present with other people. It's a real primal need. And so that's where some of the restlessness comes from, because honestly, in terms of you know, people who say that they're bored, you can always find something to do. I think the part that's really hard for us as humans is lack of physical presence. And also, there's this term skin hunger, um, which is what happens when we don't get touched. Um, and I don't just mean intimately. I mean, in the course of daily life, In the course of daily life, we hug people, we shake their hands, we put a hand on their shoulder, whatever it is, um, and just the routine ways in which we get touched are missing, too. It's like the ways that, you know, babies in orphanages, if they don't get touched or just babies in a household, if they don't get touched, they don't actually meet their developmental milestones. They don't thrive. It's it's such a part of, of what makes us human that we physically languish without it.
0: So, Laurie, a lot of our listeners are experiencing a lot of uncertainty around employment right now. They've been laid off and they don't know what the future looks like. They suspect they may be laid off, perhaps they're furloughed. And I wanted to speak specifically to the, the feelings that come up around that. On the one hand, if you're laid off in this climate, um, it stands to reason you shouldn't feel that bad about yourself because my gosh, it's, it's the pandemic. And so no one thinks it's your fault, but that doesn't seem to stop people that I know who are being laid off from feeling awful about themselves. Well, I
1: think what we do every day is a part of who we are. It's a part of our identity. And so that's a huge loss um, because a whole part of who you are is not manifested in the world at this moment. It will be again. But right now, it's just, it's another loss layered upon all of the other losses, like what I was talking about, presence, connection, all of those things.
0: Yeah. It also seems like there's still improbably shame that, that we bring into the equation that I wish we could let go of.
1: I think there is shame. I think there's still, um, a feeling of being re- having been rejected, even though we know the reasons that, you know, we couldn't stay on, you know, people don't have money to pay you anymore. People need to cut down. Um, you know, there's those questions of, well, why me? You know, because it's you know of all the people, why why me and the hundred other people? Why was I in that hundred? Um, so it does feel personal in that way, even though it's usually very much sort of a bottom line kind of issue. Sadly, you know, it's not it's not really a a question or a referendum on your value. It's simply about what the company is doing to try to survive.
0: What is your industry like right now? It's boom time for Zoom, right? It's boom time for Kroger's, the grocery store. Is it boom time for therapy? I have two
1: industries. So one of them is therapy. And um, I think it it is boom time for therapy. And I know that so many people, and I think this is a great thing, are reaching out for the first time and saying, you know what, maybe I should talk to someone. It shouldn't take a global pandemic for people to say, yeah, my emotional health matters. It's important. Um, So I hope that what we take away from this is that people will say, you know, in, in any time. It's important that if you if you want to reach out to someone that you should and you shouldn't kind of hold back or hesitate. My other industry is I'm a, I'm a writer and a speaker and um, I was supposed to open South by Southwest. I was the opening speaker back in March and that got canceled. We just did an online version of that. Um, and then I was supposed to go on a two and a half week book tour for maybe you should talk to someone. Um, and all of those events and, and those um, appearances got canceled. So, um, you know, in all of my talks, I give talks every year, many of them and, and all of them have been canceled for the whole year right now through 2021, which is, um, you know, a big part of
0: what I do as well. It's a hard pill to swallow. It's something that we've, I think you know this, we've, we've talked a lot about the spring on Hello Monday. Anybody working in the creative fields in any way who plan to debut or launch something this spring has the double heartache of not getting to share their work with the world and often not being able to pay their bills as a result of it. What have you aspired to do to make up for the the inability to be able to go out and talk to people in person? My
1: book came out a year ago, so I was able to bring it into the world. And it's, it's, you know, I think, especially relevant to the pandemic. So a lot of people are still reading it. But I have a lot of friends whose books just launched during this time. And so what I think we can all do um, for them is, is to, you know, what I've been doing. And I think a lot of writers in the community have been doing is making sure that people know about those books, because when you write a book, you put everything into it. I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't know if people realize when they go to the bookstore and they pick up a book, what had to happen for that writer to write that book and get that book out there. And it's, um, it's a profound experience I think for most writers. And so, Um, That's one thing. And I think the independent bookstores are also suffering so much. And so um, I think a lot of us in the writing community are trying to make sure that people are still ordering books. And um, because it's it's a really good thing to do just for your own mental health during the pandemic, but also it supports these businesses.
0: There are a host of other avenues for sharing your book. I have been invited to two virtual book parties this week, which is what happens when you're a writer and have a lot of friends in the industry, but somehow showing up on Zoom for a book party doesn't feel like it will achieve the same goal, aim. We've had eight weeks of reconstituting our life on Zoom and Jeans and all the other software options we have. Have we learned anything yet, or have you learned anything yet, about how to be a communicator using these tools?
1: I would say the one thing that surprised me in a positive way has been how much you can connect directly with your readers. Um, You know, I think when you're doing these appearances and you're up on a stage and you have, you know, a thousand or whatever people you have in the audience, um, it's there's a connection because you get to meet your readers and they get to ask questions and, you know, bring them to the stage. But I think when you're sitting on Zoom and you're sitting in your bedrooms (laughs) and, um, you know, your hair is growing out and, you know, you're wearing whatever you're wearing. I, I think there's something that feels very connecting about that. And you have these kinds of conversations that you normally wouldn't get to have in a traditional book tour forum. I wonder if there's a way to integrate that into things when you know when things normalize whatever that means because i think that connection with readers is so rewarding for writers
0: you you do these two things and one requires you to sit in a room with individuals and try to take yourself or your ego out of the equation and be an active listener and a reflector and the other requires you to do what at least seems from the outside to be the opposite which is to stand in front of large groups of people and inhabit your ego step into your own personality and opinions and speak. And I wanna know what these two things have in common.
1: I think they're actually very complementary because one of the things that you learn as a therapist is what listening really means. And so I think that a lot of people think that listening is you hear the words that somebody says and you're paying attention to them. Um, that's part of it. But I always like to say that I'm listening for the music under the lyrics when people come into therapy. So the lyrics are, you know, the content, here's the problem, here's what's going on. The music is, what is the emotional resonance of this for that person? Um, can I relate to it in some way? Um, you know what is the underlying struggle or pattern that got this person into the situation in the first place so you're listening on so many different levels and and the music level i think that allows me to write and speak when you listen to the music you hear all the notes in the song and then i think that those are where all of this kind of insights and the kinds of things that i like to think about write about talk about come from so it's it's taking what i've heard when i was um, when I was training to be a therapist, one of our clinical supervisors said to us, um, you have two ears and one mouth. There's a reason for that ratio. <laughs> she was talking about listening, right? Which is sometimes our instincts when we're listening to someone is to talk. It's to, we hear them and then we think we have a great idea for them or a great suggestion for them. And so we start to try to fix it. We start to try to offer our ideas when we really need to stop talking. There's a a word that's taped up in my office, ultra-crepidarianism. It means the habit of giving advice or opinions outside of one's knowledge or competence. And I have it taped up there because it reminds me that I'm not there to give advice. I'm not there to tell somebody how to live their lives. I'm there to understand their experience so that I can help them figure out what they want to do to change their lives. And the same thing happens when I'm talking. So I'm taking what I've gathered from all of this listening, and I'm sharing some of that with people so that they can think about themselves differently.
0: It's a beautiful way of expressing it. Uh, that vocabulary word, what was it again?
1: Ultra-crepidarianism.
0: Kind of sounds like mansplaining to me, which, by the way, men and women do very effectively.
1: Yeah, it sounds a little aggressive, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does. Um, But it also, it also seems to me like that attribute, the ability to say, tell me more instead of, and I have an idea that can fix you, um, extends far beyond therapy as a helpful attribute when we want to achieve things.
1: Yeah, it it works really well.
0: That was Lori Gottlieb. You can visit her website, Lori Gottlieb, that's L-O-R-I, to learn more about her. She's also got a TED Talk there. It's called How Changing Your Story Can Change Your Life. Now, a question for you. Are you really able to change the way that you talk to yourself while you're stuck at home? I've been trying. Has your inner voice shifted as you commute if you're commuting, if you're, say, an essential worker or going back this week? We want to know. Tell us on LinkedIn using the hashtag HelloMonday. Or better yet, grab something to drink and join us for office hours on my LinkedIn profile. We get together at 3 p.m. on Wednesdays. It's our space to gather and to feel uncertain together, and you're always welcome. Time's especially limited these days, as we're trying to care for ourselves and others and work. Thanks for spending some of your time with us. If you like our show, and we hope you do, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It takes two seconds, and it helps new listeners find us. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Oriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini, Victoria Taylor, Michaela Greer, and Juliette Verreau help us avoid ultra-crepidarianism. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. You all done? Done. Okay. okay, you're all done. Okay.